it's good to be back in Mafra again, even though I'm actually in a church in Allenbank, south of Warrigal. Uh, we're continuing our occasional series through the Beatitudes, the eight uh, blessed are sayings of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And to, uh, to uh, follow this talk, it would be useful to have read, firstly, Psalm 37 and Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. I'll just pray for us before we look at the text. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and the teaching about the kingdom of God. Uh, help us to understand what it means to participate in your kingdom in terms of this saying of Jesus, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, if you ask the question today, who owns or controls the earth, you would get a whole range of answers from different cultural perspectives and it would inevitably raise political issues such as climate change, corporate injustice, gulf between rich and poor, indigenous ownership and so on. Probably the name Donald Trump would come up in there, in there somewhere as well one way or another. But the phrase, blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth, is perhaps the most well-known of the eight sayings of Jesus here in terms of our wider culture. And so many variations of this phrase are used politically or for other reasons. So if you Google the expression, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, here are some of the other options you'll get. Blessed are the young, for they will inherit the national debt. The meek shall inherit the earth, but not its mineral rights. Pity the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In times of change, the learning ones inherit the earth, whereas the learned will be beautifully equipped to live in a world that no longer exists. Or another one, we do not inherit the earth from our ancestors, but borrow it from our children. Or someone once saw some graffiti that said, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's all right with the rest of you. There are just, these are just some of the ways that people want to spin this idea of what it means to inherit the earth, uh, to accommodate modern concerns. And there is a certain amount of wisdom in these variations, but they don't fully or properly reflect what Jesus meant because they are disconnected from Jesus' teaching from the Old Testament framework in which it rightly belongs. And even at the time of Jesus, when the Roman Empire dominated the political landscape, this phrase of Jesus would have being considered an absolute absurdity. See, the Romans ruled, like many people of that era, by arrogance, power and brutality. And in a sense, that reflects the fact that even today, it is usually the arrogant or rich who control the earth and would expect to inherit it, or at least to get 
to eat a substantially bigger part of the pie. And this, is, this isn't too different to Israel living in the promised land after the exile to Babylon. This event profoundly shaped, uh, shaped the nature of Israel at the time of Jesus, especially in terms of expectations concerning how God's kingdom would come. Because we've seen that the prophets foresaw this glorious new exodus from Babylon where a righteous, a new righteous Jerusalem would be established by the greater David. But what was not understood well at all was the prophet's insistence that the problem is Israel themselves, which is why particularly Isaiah describes Israel as a blind and deaf and unfaithful servant. So what is ultimately required in Isaiah is an ideal servant, surprisingly a suffering servant. But this beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, actually comes from the time of David, well before the exile to Babylon. And this saying is actually not new in any way in the sense that Psalm 37 says exactly the same thing. So we need to look at the original in Psalm 37 uh, before we can understand how Jesus has adapted this to help his hearers and us understand the coming of the kingdom of God and its nature. We don't have time to thoroughly exegete this psalm, but we need to see the key ideas and the outline might help as we look at this. This is a wisdom psalm and one concern of wisdom in the Old Testament is the question, is living a righteous life worth it? Given that, superficially at least, the wicked seem much better off. This is an acrostic psalm which means each, each section begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the opening concern expressed in verses 1 to 6 is to not fret because of the wicked who prosper by their wickedness and the reason we shouldn't fret is because they will vanish. The promised land is not ultimately for them. But the word fret is too weak a translation. It is more like don't burn or smoulder with anger and jealousy. I'm sure we've all been tempted to envy the filthy rich who don't care about God because they apparently have everything or everything material anyway. But typically of the Bible, contrary to popular expectation, it doesn't just say don't do this, it shows us a better way. Verses 3 to 6. See, the claim of the Bible isn't that having heaps of stuff is one way to find purpose and pleasure in this life and trusting in the Lord is an alternative but less interesting and pleasurable way to enjoy life. The claim in these verses is that delight in Yahweh is the superior pathway to substantial pleasure and satisfaction of our deepest longings. 
that investing heavily in material things exclusively defies the human purpose and leads to a hollow reflection of true life. So trust wholeheartedly in Yahweh because he is actively working to establish righteousness and justice and to display the rightness of these things. See, if we really believe life is not in the abundance of our possessions, why do we chase and possess them so hard? The delight of life is Yahweh himself. For us, that means as he has fully revealed himself in Jesus. There's a band that came out of the uh, church in Seattle, USA, Mars Hill, called the band's called Citizens and Saints. And they've got this song called Relent. And some of the lyrics go like this. If I gained the whole world, would it be worth the price? To work these hands to death and not be satisfied. And later in the song, you give life that is worth the loss of mine. And so verses 7 to 11 present a slightly different nuance of this idea. It goes on, don't smoulder and burn with anger and jealousy at the wicked because it might lead you to take matters into your own hands. See, instead, wait on the Lord because he is active in bringing about this ultimate purpose for the promised land. So we see in these verses, inheriting the land is mentioned twice and it is the meek who will inherit it which also corresponds to those who wait for the Lord to act. Basically, the promised land is for the righteous who trust in the Lord and he will act to ultimately bring that about. There is no place at God's table for the arrogant wealthy. As this text says, you will look all you want, but they just won't be there. The message of wisdom in in the Bible is not just do this because it's don't do this because it's bad, but it's don't do this because there is something much better. There is a better life than the one our culture tries to sell us. Apparently, there's a social media phenomenon now called FOMO, (laughs) fear of missing out. So it's important to note that the word for delight here in verse 11 is rare and means to find pleasure. And it's largely used in Isaiah 40 to 66. So one example, Isaiah 66, 11, where the righteous find pleasure because they are nourished deeply from and by the eternal righteous new Jerusalem. So be concerned about missing out on that, not the temporary and trivial things of now. Then verses 12 to 26, we have this extended contrast between the way of righteousness and wickedness and the inevitable outcomes of each path. So verses 12 to 15, there are a couple of contrasts going on. 
Firstly, it says the wicked plot against and despise the righteous, but in turn the Lord laughs at the wicked. Some people worry about this, but the sort of situation described here is that of some puny, temporary creature shaking their fist in the face of the almighty, eternal creator. It is a laughable situation. What are they going to do? And secondly, the very nature of wickedness is that they plot against, that what they plot against others will come back on them. Unfortunately, wickedness is destructive to others, but it is also self-destructive. Then, and then the main contrast or claim of verses 16 to 26 is that it is better to have little and be righteous than to have much and be wicked. And a few reasons are given for this. So verse 17, the arms of the wicked will be broken. That is, their power and activity will be made ineffective. All the inheritance of the righteous, also the inheritance of the righteous will go on and on, but the wicked will vanish. They may have much for a time, but then they have absolutely nothing. Also the wicked borrow and either can't or won't pay back, whereas those blessed by the Lord will have enough not just for themselves, but to continue being generous. And ultimately, they will inherit the land. And verses 25 to 26, he ends with a personal observation that the righteous are never forsaken and are surrounded by blessing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And because of this contrast, the righteous are being strongly encouraged to keep being faithful because Yahweh loves justice and will cut off evildoers, verses 27 to 33. Of particular note again is verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. See, the whole purpose of the promised land is as a new Eden to re-establish righteousness, a place for man and God to dwell together. And that is a plan that Yahweh will never abandon. So don't be tempted by their lifestyle because you may end up sharing their fate. So then verses 34 to 40 emphasise that the wicked have no future in the promised land. So again, verse 34, those who wait for the Lord, keeping faithfulness with him, will inherit the land. And also importantly here, they will watch justice being done on the wicked. And this is an important idea in the Bible. Justice will be done and will be seen to be done. See, no one will be able to walk away from the final judgment saying that wasn't fair. 
So continue to take refuge in the Lord, even though the surrounding wickedness is menacing and seems overwhelming, because it won't be there that long. And it certainly has no future in the kingdom of God. Sometimes I, I consider the question, how will good triumph over evil? Because it wouldn't necessarily be the natural conclusion to come to when you look at the world. Of course, we've been conditioned to think that good will triumph from our cultural perspective, but why? At times throughout history, it would have been a near impossible conclusion to come to. The reason given by David here is that Yahweh himself is overseeing things in such a way that he is determined to make it happen. And really, that is the only real hope we have that righteousness will prevail. So to summarise this psalm in terms of its significance for this beatitude, that the meek will inherit the land, we need to notice that it is a wisdom psalm that is instructing people to continue to live wisely, even though superficially it appears that the wicked are better off. We also need to notice that this psalm comes from Israel, from the time of Israel at their best, which is disappointing, isn't it? Because even Israel at their best, there is still this level of injustice and greed and institutional wickedness. So while the exile to Babylon provides something of the main framework and background in which Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he's drawing here from the time of David when in reality things weren't that great either. Also it's important to see in this psalm that those who inherit the land are described in a variety of ways. Those who inherit the land are those who wait for Yahweh rather than take vengeance themselves and try to execute some kind of vigilante justice. Those who inherit the land are those who are blessed by Yahweh and they are generous with what they have because they understand their material well-being in terms of what they have been given. Those who inherit the land are also the righteous and what characterises the righteous is that they are wise meditators on God's law so that they can get it into their hearts. And of course, the meek inherit the land in that they are restrained and self-controlled and so seek to create an environment of peace and well-being which accords with God's purpose for the land. And of course, these ideas all come together in the message of the prophets, particularly around the time of the exile, especially Isaiah 61, where we've seen so far that the kingdom is for the poor in spirit and for those who grieve for this glorious new Jerusalem because they will be satisfied. And so the first two Beatitudes very much relate to this one, being poor in spirit and grieving for the new Jerusalem and meekly waiting for Yahweh to establish his kingdom 
are fundamentally related. So to go to Matthew chapter 5 now, just in general terms, we've also seen that, that the whole concern of these Beatitudes is to describe the blessed, favoured or happy person and that is derived from the Old Testament and that Jesus going up on a mountain is a deliberate description that identifies him as the greater Moses teaching the new Israel. But unlike Moses, he doesn't have to receive the words of God. He can just speak them of his own authority. Again, now what we now that we've done some work in the Old Testament, what Jesus says here in Matthew 5 5 is reasonably clear, and we can make a few observations. Firstly, it's important to define the Greek word for meek. The Greek origin of this word is when a when a wild animal was tamed, so it becomes meek. And the opposite of this was like an uncontrolled or brutal harshness. Now, while we need to be a bit careful about just taking these meanings fully, because words change over time, especially when they're used by biblical writers who come from a different worldview than the Greeks, but we can still see something of this idea in the biblical use. Meekness is like a controlled strength. It's the capacity of someone to deliberately and willingly not act arrogantly or demand their rights. It is a purposeful trust in Yahweh that he will resolve what is wrong. So it's certainly not cowardice or weakness or naivety. It's not saying don't act for justice in legitimate law-abiding ways or it's not also not saying just pretend that everything is okay when it clearly isn't but it's a deliberate waiting and trusting that God has a plan to bring about justice and the triumph of good and the meek will purposefully cooperate with that. It's interesting that the only other times this word meek is used in Matthew, it is a description of Jesus himself. So chapter 11 says, Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy burden. Come to, you, uh, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Or chapter 21, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, meek and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So this being a psalm of David is instructive because this is importing past hope and expectation into this new situation. It's not that Davidic kingship has taken a back seat. It's just that it needs to be redefined in view of the need also for the suffering servant. 
Israel doesn't just need another king like David to shepherd God's people. They actually need a greater David, one, though, who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The one who in meekness and complete trust in Yahweh the Father bears the cross. So in terms of the promised land, this was the inheritance of Israel. This was the holy place where God's rule will be established and he will and it will be a place of justice. But the exile reshaped this expectation. See, the land ultimately gives way to the inheritance of the world. Paul is unambiguous in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. In Romans 4, Paul is talking about Abraham and his faith uh, bringing righteousness before the law even came. And he puts it this way, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. What's important to notice here is that Paul uses the word cosmos or world instead of the normal word for land or earth as the inheritance of God's people. This is why translators are right to struggle about whether to translate this word in Matthew chapter 5 as land or earth. Both Hebrew and Greek use the same word for land and earth. So Jesus is restating the promise to Abraham adapted by David in Psalm 37 that the meek will inherit the land. But this pattern gives way to a renewed earth, the inheritance of Jew and Gentile. The renewed earth is expressed in terms of a new Jerusalem, the eternal home of righteousness. And according to the Lord Jesus, it is for the meek. So what does it mean to be a meek person? Well, it's someone who doesn't fret about their relative economic circumstances or current life circumstances in comparison to those who wickedly exploit the earth. It is someone who doesn't pursue personal vengeance or vindictiveness because of being insulted by the unbelieving rich or mocked by the defenders of trendy popular ideologies that oppose God. See, the way to inherit the earth is not by political force, deception, manipulation, military conquest, wicked corruption. The way to inherit the earth is to wait on Yahweh, ultimately revealed in Jesus. If you want a real inheritance, delight in Yahweh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, See, God is going to redistribute wealth and the arrogant wealthy don't have a seat at that table. This psalm acknowledges that sometimes the righteous do suffer at the hands of the wicked and that the wicked appear to flourish for a while by their wickedness. But the point is there is a final judgment 
Even now, God is acting to restrain evil to some extent. But there is a day coming when this is completed. See, without a final judgment, the Bible makes no sense, particularly Psalms like this. And of course, we understand Jesus' death is fundamental to God's verdict on wickedness. He will finish what he started. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus make certain his return in final judgment. And we need to remember, don't we, just how powerless the early Christians appeared against the powerful empires of the first century. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. See, the idea that the meek trust is that the meek trust in a crucified Messiah, which is absolute foolishness to the Gentile. And just as it was absurd then, and still seems unlikely to many people now. But then, as someone once said, in regard to how Christianity changed the Roman Empire and brought down the arrogance of Rome, nowadays people call their dog Caesar and their sons Paul. Let me uh, pray for us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would continue to cause us to be wise and meek people in our own time and place, uh, to proclaim Jesus without shame and to invest our delight and hope in him, to see clearly the nature of these things and to continue to invest in your kingdom and the hope of the final triumph of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.